0: You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins.
1: Hey, all you wiretappers out there! Welcome to another uh, show. I, uh, I really appreciate y'all tuning in. I have a special show for you today. From uh, we always talk about, about the mouths of the men that did it. So, you know, we talked to uh, we talked to Ken before about a book he did. Uh, uh, great escape of 1931 well we'll ask him exactly what the title of that is and i'll have a link to it it's a it's a pretty interesting story and uh, but he was also a correctional officer up at leavenworth when every mob guy practically united states went through there at one time or another and he has some great stories so ken welcome to the show glad to be here Folks, this is Ken LeMaster. And and how many years did you spend at Leavenworth?
0: Uh, I actually did 32 total years of corrections. Started out with a military prison, worked at the Kansas State Penitentiary for a year, and then did 27 years uh, with the U.S. Penitentiary at Leavenworth.
1: So, um, we talked before about your book. Tell the Guys here, what you're, I know you have three books. So tell them a little bit about your three books.
0: Um, I started out with a pictorial history in 2008 of the uh, United States Penitentiary, uh, carrying the history through in photographs. The second book was on Fort Leavenworth. The third book was about the city of Leavenworth. They were all pictorial histories. And then the story, uh, that's inside of the book Leavenworth Seven: The Deadly 1931 Prison Escape. All centers around Frank Nash and the group of individuals that were sent to Leavenworth with Frank Nash. That what that <laughs> that did the last armed train robbery in Oklahoma Indian Territory history. Oh yeah, I remember Nash, that. Nash was the. Uh, uh, mastermind of the train robbery for an Oklahoma outlaw by the name of Al Spencer. <laughs> Everybody had kind of made fun of Al Spencer because he, he his, he always wanted to be known as like the, the next Jesse James, yeah. uh, great train robberies and stuff like that. And, and the only problem was, is, is old Al. Every time he robbed a bank, it was always in a rural area. And he'd only get away with like 17 bucks, 25 bucks <laughs>
2: Yeah.
0: And the media, went to making fun of him for quite a period of time. So he decided he wanted to make a big splash. And, and for most, a lot of people that don't know a lot of your early, uh, movie cowboy movies that are silent movies, mm-hmm. Al Spencer actually appears in some of those movies <laughs> as himself. Well, he had this big flaming ego, and he decided one time, well, we're going to just, I, I'm going to break the mold, and I'm going to do something big. <laughs> so he decided to rob the Katie Limited in Okesa, Oklahoma, of the MKT Railroad, and he got Frank Nash to plot it. Well, Frank Nash was a master plotter. This guy would go in, and he would plot out every escape route, plus the robberies and stuff, and he had told Spencer and his group, don't touch any of the federal bonds. We could talk our way out of McAllister, which Nash actually did about three times over the course of his criminal career. But I can't talk myself out of Leavenworth. Well, Spencer decides to go into town and tell everybody, Hey, we're going to rob the Katie limited in Okisa just to show that I'm big time. So the night of the robbery, the hillside's got hundreds of people all over it. The next morning when they were investigating a robbery, they found cigarette butts and trampled grass and everything, or all these hundreds of people that come down here to watch this robbery. <laughs> and, and well, long story short, they send Nash and uh, six others to Leavenworth. Al Spencer meets his demise in a shootout with, uh, us marshals and deputy sheriffs. And, Nash gets to Leavenworth, and yay, lo and behold, he talks himself out of Leavenworth. (laughs) He gets in with the, he's a cook inside the uh, hospital, and the AW then had to eat at the institution hospital. AW's captains and everything had to eat the same meal at the same time as the inmates back then to prove that it was palatable Uh, and could be Yeah. So he gets in good with the associate warden, The associate warden decides, hey, I need a cook for special events out at my house. So he gets Frank Nash, a trustee's pass, which, by the way, Frank Nash's assistant cook was an individual by the name of Frank Nitty. So here they are. They're out here cooking at the deputy warden's house on on special occasions and stuff. So Nash, one afternoon, walks up, uses his trustee's pass and says, hey, I'm cooking a dinner over at the deputy warden's house tonight. Uh, they let him out along about nine o'clock or so. The officer calls over to the deputy warden's house and says, Hey, it's getting about count time. We need Frank Nash back over here. And he says, Nash ain't been at my house all night. (laughs) So he got out. And when he got out, he aided, he was aided by machine gun Kelly, uh, Thomas James Holden and Francis Keating for those people out there that don't know who Thomas James Holden is. He would eventually become the very first man ever placed on the FBI's ten most wanted list for committing a murder. He killed his wife, two of her brothers, and shot his sister-in-law over a drunken argument in Chicago and fled Chicago. And he was also wanted in a string of bank robber or a store robbery. So it was. He the, got the. I was,
1: was what you call in the modern terms a dysfunctional family.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> everybody should have one <laughs> but so uh um,
1: so go ahead with your, your story they, they they're gonna they, they're out sounds like and out know. Uh, nice knew the machine gun kelly and and these other two guys were sitting outside and and right and they were waiting for him to slip away
0: so and and the funny part about that they you know the book goes through how they got the weapons inside the institution the breakdown of, of how they figured out how to get it done. Inmates that were in and then inmates that were out because they couldn't trust them because they were running their mouth and stuff like that. Well, they get outside the Institute. They get into the warden's office at morning, take the warden hostage and I always tell people they couldn't have picked the worst hostage to take ever. The guy's name was Thomas Bruce white. He was the warden. He was an active uh, FBI agent at the time. He was a warden. Yeah. He had started his career as a Texas Ranger and became a railroad detective when he got married and enlisted. and was trying to enlist in the army in world war one. And this young man approached him, uh, by the name of J Edgar Hoover and says, Hey, I'm starting this new federal law enforcement system. I think you'd be idea for the job. Well, Thomas Bruce white joins the Bureau of investigation and he is pretty much basically a a real crime solver. I mean, he, Mm uh, broke the, uh, case at the Atlanta prison where the warden actually uh, wound up spending time in his own prison. Uh, he had been the principal investigator for the Osage Indian murders, which is covered in a book called, uh, killers of the flower moon, Mm -hmm. uh, which is also now being made into a movie. I heard that. Uh, And, uh, when he gets done with that case, of course there's signs of corruption and stuff going on inside Leavenworth and they send him to Leavenworth. They call the warden to Washington to let him know that, Hey, by the way, you're being fired. <laughs> uh, and Thomas Bruce white takes over. Well, white, uh, you know, being the individual that he is, uh, starts talking to staff, starts talking to inmates and figures out some of the corruption. But the biggest problem white was facing was, In the era of the gangster and the depression era, an institution that was designed to hold 1,500 inmates was now holding Mm 4,000. So anything to keep people occupied was what they were doing. Well, these guys masterminded us escape, took the warden hostage on December 11th, 1931, went down the front steps of the institution, and... Didn't make it very far because they get out to the street and they commandeer a car, cut out towards uh, the west, and the driver, a guy by the name of uh, Charlie Berta, looks over to Warden and says, which is the fastest way out of here? Well, he tells him, if you follow this road uh, west, it'll get you to Atchison in about 20 to 30 minutes, and you can go across the bridge at Atchison and be on the back roads of Missouri. Nobody would ever know where to find you well Berta decides he's lying to him and he takes a left instead of going right and just as soon as he leaves the road uh, he leaves an asphalt road onto a dirt road which is bogged down in mud because it's been raining for the last month <laughs> yeah. and and the, and the story starts there it, it it's I mean, it it gets wild, folks. We don't want to give away all of it. So it it really gets wild after that.
1: I I know that. I read that book. It's it's a well-written book. And and, and so I highly recommend you guys go out and and snag that book. It's interesting. And just a little addition of Frank. Jelly Nash was also the guy they were trying to uh, uh, keep from being sent back to Leavenworth when the Union Station Massacre happened. So he he was a really important character in those uh, 1930s bank robbery gangs.
0: Uh, You know, the most interesting part about Nash, uh, I've got the Union Station Massacre FBI report, the entire thing, and... and I've actually got a different spin on that. I I don't think they were trying to break Nash out. I think they're trying to kill him. Oh, really? He knew too much? <laughs> and, and, well, not only did he know too much, but you got to remember back in 1934, they were going from the old time outlaws. They didn't want the old time outlaws. If you think back and uh, look at the movie uh, where Johnny Depp played John Dillinger yeah, and John Dillinger's in Chicago and they walk him into this place Uh, where all these phones are hooked up and organized crime is getting its feet in the door.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, They, they, they were really telling these people that there was no place for them. They were bringing too much heat down on them. Yeah, that's true. And Nash was a mastermind in, in criminal activity and he was an old outlaw. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, they, I really think that instead of trying to break him out and they were trying to get rid of him because a lot of those outlaws—they were trying to get rid of. I mean, yeah. organized crime helped bring down Dillinger in, in the long run. Yeah. And an amazing, an amazing fact about that was—is as is Thomas Bruce White's brother uh, was also with the Bureau of Investigation. He is actually the man that shot Dillinger going down the alley. <laughs> so, Small so girl, that's have, oh yeah, <laughs> and but yeah, Nash was that. Na- they were pretty much basically trying to get rid of those, those rogue gangsters.
2: Yeah.
0: And either trying to get them sent to prison or they, they knew they weren't going to go back to prison very easily. They were, just <laughs> popping, they were popping them off themselves. And they wouldn't stay in prison either. There were several prison breaks during that time or, you know, oh, yeah. conning their way out or whatever. Yeah. When so, I was doing research on 11 seven, <laughs> one of the interesting things I found in the national archives in Kansas city was they had the, um, hotel register for the uh, hotel, the Arietta hotel that they were hiding out in and sit in uh, Illinois. And the interesting part was is, is how they showed how they were doing their uh, aliases. but in an adjoining room right next to Frank Nash was Evelyn shit and her name is actually written on the in the, in the register by her, Evelyn shit. And that was Dillinger's girlfriend, right? That was Dillinger's girlfriend. Right. And shortly, uh, shortly before Dillinger got out of the Lima jail, his crew was broke out of the uh, Indiana State Penitentiary in Michigan City in the exact same fashion that the Leavenworth uh, Seven got out of the front door of the prison.
1: Oh, interesting. So now let's talk about your time in Leavenworth. And, and so first thing I want you to tell me again, that story about Russell Bufalino. This That's a great story, guys.
0: Yeah, I was an officer working a cell house during day watch and the mafia guys were all standing there waiting to go to lunch and Russell Bufalino was standing there. And we're just making small talk before I brought them out to chow and, I look over at him and I just ask him, I said, so what did you do with Jimmy Hoffa? And of course, all of his all of his cronies are standing there and are going, ah, you can't ask the old man that question. And I was kind of like, Hey guys, it's too late. I already did. Well, Buffalino just stands there and you know, you got this picture of the, uh, of an old grandfatherly looking gentleman standing there. Yeah. Uh, his, his inmate, uh, clothing is all pressed and clean and. He's got his cane there, and he's just standing there, and he's just looking around, and and he didn't say anything. Well, as they call the unit for Chow, and I open the door and run these guys out. Well, while Buffalino's walking past me, he reaches over, and he grabs me by the shirt sleeve, and he pulls me over next to him, and he... He looks at me and it's his just dead cold, stone cold looking face. And he says, we cremated that son of a bitch alive. <laughs> <laughs> and I just look at him and laugh and I said, well, mystery solved.
1: <laughs> yeah. Mystery solved, folks.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and it was just like, you know, I got to think about that. And I was kind of like, man, that, out of all the ways <laughs> in the world to go, I, I wouldn't pick that one. <laughs>
1: Really well, you know they were, they were mad at him. They didn't want him to come back, and and he was he was trying to come back as they the head of the
0: teamsters, and they they, and, had, they
1: and, had things going the way they wanted them going.
0: So, and, and when I first started at Leavenworth, uh, nineteen eighty three, all of the old guys were in D cell House, which is the second oldest cell house any uh, in institution,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it's currently the only cell house that is. Been left in its original state. Oh, really? After they remodeled the other three, and left D cell house as its original uh, condition. Well, they're all down on the on the main floor, and they're all in cells. You've got uh, Sonny Franzi, Russell Buffalino, Christian David, and several others down the row, and it's kind of (laughs) and. It, it, it's they dubbed it mafia row because every single solitary guy on that range was pretty much basically either a, a head mobster or the, the, uh, for lack of better terms, the mobsters, caretakers, the guys that were supposed to protect them and, and keep them out of trouble and keep them away from other inmates and, and things like that. And it, it was just kind of interesting, uh, how they had it all set up and, and, you know, there's a lot of people when I sit there and make the comment, I say uh, Christiane David. A lot of people don't have a clue who he is.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask. Actually, I was just looking at my phone. I don't recognize that name. Who is that?
0: Christiane David uh, was a French heroin smuggler oh. that was involved in a French connection. OK, but he also had been suspected of being involved with the John F. Kennedy assassination. Hmm. And when the French decided to you know, have a trial, they did what was called uh, a trial by absentia. Yeah,
1: I've heard
0: of that. He wasn't there, so they they went ahead and tried him anyway and found him guilty. Well, one afternoon, I'm back at the rear quarter, which it's kind of hard to explain. A rear quarter is a is a it goes into the dining room and the auditorium area, but it also lets you out of the east and west side of the institution and it's a controlled door situation and they always have an officer back there during open hours so i'm back here working one afternoon this lieutenant comes back and he says he says uh you're going to have christian david come through here in a few minutes uh he's on a pass going to the hospital just process his pass and let him out the door but don't say anything else and don't let him know don't act like you know and I said, don't act like I know what. And about two or three <laughs> minutes later, here comes this uh, transport van backing up to the rear quarter
2: Yeah.
0: on the east side. So I'm kind of like looking at this and I'm like, okay, I, I know something, but I don't know nothing. <laughs> well, anyway, Christiane DeVite had been uh, tried and found guilty of uh, murdering a French detective. Mm. <laughs> And a couple of minutes later, here comes David down the hallway. And a lot of those uh, old mobsters, they were really kind of funny, how they used to uh, motor around the institution. They all had canes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they, all did, they, they all did this little shuffle, and they would do the little shuffle and a little cane coming down the hallway like, you know, they were 95-year-old men.
2: Yeah.
0: And they'd be coming down. He'd come down the hallway. So I process his past, look at him, and I tell him, okay. So I walk out, and I open the. Grill door, and he looks out and sees that van. But he don't think much of it. And as he's walking through the door, the back door of that van comes flying open. And here is the uh, French detective's partner in the back of that van, and he recognizes it. Oh boy! <laughs> so he knows what's up. He's yeah. going back to France. Yeah, and. The fight is on. You would have thought Mike Tyson had just showed up. Oh, really? <laughs> now this little this little old wavering man became <laughs> quite the quite the chore to get down. And and uh, the French have a different way of of uh, transporting their inmates. <laughs> we got this guy down, and uh, the two French detectives that were in the vehicle get out, and they actually roll this guy up in duct tape. Really? (laughs) From his shoulders all the way to his ankles. (laughs) And and it's like, we're holding this guy down and they're rolling this guy up in duct tape. And we're like looking at them like, okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And when they get get him wrapped up in duct tape, (laughs) they go back and they put two loops, one in the middle of his back and one in the middle of his, like right about the knee level. And they tape that down. And the two loops are actually to pick him up. Pick him up. <laughs> and they pick him up and throw him in the back of his van like it's Samsonite luggage. Oh God. <laughs> and, and, and off they go. And me and the lieutenant are standing there looking at each other like uh, well, you know, winning we <laughs> <laughs> we <went to> France. <laughs> but but and off he went. So you know, he uh I I don't he's probably dead by now, but it, he got life in, in a French prison. Yeah. It was just kind of. It was just kind of interesting how they they did things. And that was and that was a good one. So he yeah, was. So duck, he was in with tape, them. a lot of problems.
1: Yeah, really. Yeah, duct tape. There's a song that says, "Give me a little duct tape to patch up my life." You know, I don't know how many things I've <laughs> patched up with duct tape, it, it it's useful for anything. I've kept cars going for you know several hundred miles oh, yeah. with duct tape. Oh yeah. <laughs> But, but uh, so they had him in with the mob guys, that's interesting. Well, you think was that because of age and they put people group people of a certain age and a certain
0: you know Well, I mean, it, was it, that, he was grouped by age, but I'm pretty darn for sure that probably Christian David, even though he was a French uh heroin smuggler, probably had some type of connection with the mafia. Right, and had connection to the mafia. So because it, it, there was of,
1: a, that French connection heroin came. To, to New York and Montreal. And, and it was connected to, right. I think the Bonanno family at the time and, and, or maybe Lucchese, I can't remember but they were connected. They were Bob connected. That was a whole, you know, uh, La Cosa Nostra in, in the United States. And, uh, the oh, yeah. uh, milieu, I think they call that in France, you know, for the Corsicans mm-hmm. and the French, uh, uh, organized crime over there. So interesting. Now, now let's talk about another guy who, uh, uh, who I know, uh, you know, kind of used to know a little bit, and every policeman knew him, was up there a lot, and I know a lot about him, and, and he's a good guy. He, he's one of those guys, uh, James Jr. Bradley. I've had some, uh, I, I need to do an interview with his grandson, I've emailed with him a little bit, because he he appreciated that when I talked about Jr. before, that uh, I kind of gave the other side of Jr. He's a good guy. He's pleasant, He's uh, he helps people out. You know, when Jr. got out, the penitentiary. The last time he moved into an assisted living place over in Columbus Park and uh, the North End or Little Italy, and and he, I had two different people report to me, and they weren't, you know, these were just people, and they didn't even know. One of them didn't even know who Junior Bradley was that he had these mob connections, and talk about how he helps people out. You know, when you're new there, he'll like make sure that you, you find this and find that. And, and he said, all the little old ladies down there were, were so grateful, you know, because anything they, they needed anything lifted or handled or carried junior was there to help. And, and then I know another guy that was, was in the joint with him for a little bit. And, and, and he said, yeah, junior would, was the kind of guy when you were new in, if, you know, somebody, if he knew you or somebody had sent word to him that you were coming, then Junior was right there to help you out. So tell, tell me tell me your memories of, of Junior Bradley.
0: Junior worked in the food service area, and he was pretty much basically uh, the warehouse help, but he was also, he kept the staff apprised of what was on shorthand and, and helped do the ordering and stuff as far as, Get stuff in from the outside warehouse, which I, later in my career, I ran the outside food service warehouse operation and I'd bring food into the institution. I'd order food and stuff like that. Well, junior was pallet jack operator and would unload trucks and, and stuff like that. And like you said, he was, he was a very, very easy to talk to individual. He was, he was very knowledgeable about things inside and outside the institution, both. And he he never caused any problems, which a lot of those guys that that were in connected to the mafia and and organized crime and stuff like that, most of those guys were the same way. they they you'd never know that um, they were there. They were always pleasant to talk to. They never caused any problems. Uh, you knew that they were connected and in some cases Uh, of things going on in the institution. I know that uh, the old guys down in D cell house, when they were there uh, actually orchestrated a murder, Mm -hmm. but there was, you're never going to pin it on them. They sent they actually went to the uh, Aryan brotherhood and the Aryan brotherhood picked a guy that was trying to blood in with them to send them up to take care of the problem. And junior, uh, when he was on the outside, he actually ran a sandwich shop. Right. And one day, Junior walks up to me, and just out of the blue, he just—we're making small talk. And my father-in-law used to work for Southwestern Bell. Well, the the main office uh, area, if you're familiar with the Kansas City area, is right there, probably 300 feet from Junior's right. sandwich shop. Right, the parking right across the street right across the street right yeah. across the street and, and <laughs> junior walks up to me and we're talking making small talk about food service and stuff and what's going on during the day and he looks at me and he says oh hey by the way he says i, I uh been meaning to ask you and he says uh how's your father-in-law Red?" I kind of look at Junior out of my, I give him a little side eye, yeah. and he looks at him and he says, "Well, I used to come over and eat at the sandwich shop every once in a while." I and I was like, "Is there anybody that you don't know?" And he said, "Well, <laughs> probably not."
1: Probably not. Now, uh, you guys out there, some of you may not be familiar with Junior Bradley. If from Kansas City, you probably already followed the Kansas City mob. But he was, he was a fence. Uh, he, he was a fixer. Uh, he was, uh, he, he had connections with every. Major booster uh, in the Kansas City area and in the Midwest, or a good burglar, somebody that would uh, uh, you know go out and, and and make a good score. and and then he was also, he had a store down in the city market. That the small items that he would get in from boosters like uh, perfume and razor blades and film and aspirin anything you could get out of a drugstore he would he would he would buy it for twenty five cents on the dollar and actually he was trading uh, drugs like Dilaudid and and uh, other pharmaceuticals like that through he had another guy that you would it would bring the items to the store he'd take a look at it. And then they would either leave it in the back of his truck or he'd have them take it down by the city market. And, and then he'd send them over to this other guy who would then give them, you know, the, the request, the, the amount of drugs that Junior decided that was worth or he would just give them cash. Like I said, it's about twenty-five cents on the dollar, and we worked. If you, if you look back in the podcast and see the uh, 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 the Missouri State Trooper undercover, uh, I think uh, was was maybe the title of the the uh, show I interview I did. Well, he and a informant uh, worked Junior Bradley big time and and sold him a lot of what was supposedly uh, stolen property and and trying to make ended up making some kind of a case on him. I can't remember. But he, he also, there's another thing Junior would do is uh, a, a guy I know was in another penitentiary and, and he told me Junior sent him word that a guy named uh, Gaetano Badalamente was coming there and this guy, Needed to help that guy out. He was an older guy, didn't speak English very well, and, and he and he needed to help him out. Well, Gaetano Battlemente was a Sicilian who was the main kind of uh, kingpin in the Pizza Connection case. He was, uh, was a huge uh, cocaine and heroin dealer, uh, and so his, the Pizza Connection case was after the French Connection. So it was it was the next big, huge, big uh, Sicilian. Uh, French uh, uh, kind of international, uh, Turkish uh, drug connection uh, and Colombian drug connection into the United States. So, so Junior was that kind of guy. He was always fixing things and and making connections. We were on a, a phone, and somebody called Junior down there to sandwich shop and he was, the guy was worried his son was getting ready to do a bit up in Leavenworth. And so he's talking to junior about, you know, what does he need to do? So junior said, well, let me make some calls and, and I'll make sure when he goes in that he's taken care of. Of course, I think junior probably, probably got paid for that. They didn't really talk about pay, but uh, kind of goes without saying. So that was, that was a little bit of, of junior's and you probably saw some of that kind of, of
0: stuff, oh, yeah. yeah junior was always junior was always in the know, he knew everything that was going on. Yeah. Uh, and, and like you said, he was a fixer. He If some of these guys coming in, uh, and he probably did the same thing for this guy's son, when they came in, you know, these guys really have nothing. Yeah. And all they get when they get there is, the, you know, inmate clothing and underwear and, and a, a bar of soap that's about – it looks like a travel-sized bar of soap. <laughs> really? You know, something you could wash your hands with, and, and it's gone. And it's kind of like the uh, junior would always make sure that uh, they would take up a collection for this guy. And, guys, and what I mean by take up a collection, they would go down to the commissary, and somebody buy an extra tube of toothpaste. Mm-hmm. A couple, Another guy would buy a couple of bars of soap. A couple of guys would buy, you know, couple of things to eat, bags of chips and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and this guy would show up and, and they just made sure that he was, he hit the ground running and, and yeah. had things, <clears throat> had things to take care of, take care of him until he was able to get into the commissary and get, uh, you know, into getting himself set up. So yeah, I didn't. And, and I mean, it's, you'd see it all the time. And of course, you know, there's rules and regulations about inmates giving anything of value to another inmate. Well, yeah. it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, they, 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 find a way to do it. I mean, yeah. it, it's, 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 on the, it, with them, it's on the up and up. So I'm, yeah. and, and junior, junior was just, yeah, he knew everything that was going on in the institution. He worked for me in food service, but he also worked for me in the commissary because, uh, for a period of time in my career, I was also Uh, out of the business office and I worked a warehouse section of the business office, which also ran the, uh, inmate commissary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where, uh, and how I really got into these guys is we had a crew that we caught stealing when we did an inventory and we decided we was going to fire the entire crew. Well, my boss, Peggy comes to me one day and she says, well, you're going to the commissary next quarter uh, pick your crew. Well, Uh, by crew stealing, was that, you mean inmates
1: or, uh, uh, the inmates were stealing out of the commissary. Inmates were stealing out of the commissaries. Yeah. Right.
0: I I understand that happens every once in a while. (laughs) And and, and when I picked my crew, um, I actually picked all the mafia guys. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Uh, Yeah, my boss came in the Friday before the commissary was due to open when the inventory was over, and she says, "Well, have you found a crew?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, "They're all down here now." (laughs) She walks back in the back. She looks up and she's like, "It looks like little 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 Italy." There's one thing I do know about do do know about mobsters. They're not thieves.
1: (laughs) Not small time thieves. Yeah,
0: (laughs) you know. (laughs)
1: <laughs> do, you, do you remember? Do you remember any of the other names that were in that crew?
0: Oh yeah, that, uh, that's when I hired John Stanford for the first time. Huh. And Stanford, being a a true Sicilian, yeah, uh, speaks with the old Sicilian brogue, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, he he was the head of the Philadelphia family for you know quite some time, and and his storyline is really kind of wild because his storyline includes a rolling gun battle down a major freeway in, in yeah. Philadelphia where they were trying to kill him and his son.
1: Yeah.
0: His son actually wound up getting injured. And he was, he was always a real colorful individual to talk to. And he was always, you know, I had, I was sitting there one night and I was throwing commissary out the window at these guys that were shopping. And we had this one guy in the, in the line and he just started running his mouth. And I'm just kind of like, before I could say, I'm getting ready to say something. Before I say anything, Stanford looks over at this guy and he sits there and he says, "You needed to shut your mouth."
2: <laughs>
0: this guy looks up at him and he said there and he says, "Who that? Do you think you're talking to, old man?" And he looked at him and sat there and he says. Oh, old man, your ass! <laughs> and, I mean, they went into an exchange that was going back and forth, and I'm just sitting here actually watching it, like <laughs> yeah. I'm watching Royals or something play a, play a play a game, and I'm like, and finally, one of the other inmates out in the hallway reached over and jerked this guy backwards out of the window, and he whistled up in his ear and told him, said, uh, you know, you may want to leave that old man alone because. <laughs> He could bring a lot of problems down on you. And the guy instantly found out who, who he was talking to and he shut up and even actually apologized. Oh, I'm sorry. And he even apologized to me. And I was kind of like, Hey, cool. Yeah. Now that we understand each other, (laughs) that's a good one. (laughs) Yeah. And and when you would get on the, man, the funniest part was, is, is every time somebody would mention the name, John Gotti mm-hmm. and Stanford was there. He would go into an absolute tirade about that filthy piece of trash. <laughs> he's not a mate, man. He's not a mafia member. He's not <laughs> it's like, John, calm down, you know, wow. it, 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 relax. I mean, he would get his blood. That would get, and he told me one time, he says, he says, yeah, he said, he's like that piece of trash. He's nothing but a neighborhood punk. Who, who likes to think he's a gangster, but he's, he's just nobody really in particular. And, I, <laughs> and he says, that man uh, did an unsanctioned hit on two of my friends out in front of an eatery in New York city. Yeah. And, and he says, uh, two of those guys that pulled the trigger in that, uh, shooting, uh, my bosses were looking for somebody to, to do a particular job and I found him somebody that could do that job and drop two of those bodies, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Sorry, are you confessing?" He said, "They already know I did it, so it's kind of <laughs> I'm not telling anybody anything new." He says, "Yeah," he says, "I," he says, "I'll I'll tell anybody in the world." Uh, yeah, I'm I'm the one that I'm the one to <laughs> pay for that hit. Those two guys needed to go, and it's like well, you know, whatever floats your boat, I guess. Really, <laughs> but uh, and, but Stanford, he. He would always go down to the dining room. And and one of the things about Sonny Franzi when he was there, when he came in, all of the families, the the, the different crime families, they never sat together. They would sit in various different places in the dining room. And when Sonny got to the institution, he told them that's going to stop. When you're in jail, uh, families aren't separate we don't want these punks in this jail thinking we're weak. Mm, that's good. So he got all of the, he got all of the mafia members, even though they may have been, you know, part of the West coast mob or East coast mob, or, or you know, even the Southern mafia, uh, the Dixie mafia, because we had a couple of those guys in there too. Uh, he brought them all together and started sitting in their own section in the dining room. Ah, interesting. And, and, one of the most interesting things that happened one day. I'm standing in the dining room, and of course it's lunchtime, and you've got three quarters of the inmate population in the dining room. So it, and it's kind of like you never want to walk into that situation where you're standing in the dining room and you could hear a pin drop three blocks away. Yeah. If it's quiet, <laughs> you got a problem. You got oh, that's interesting. And it better be backs to the wall because something's going to fly. Ah. And I'm standing down there one day and, and of course, you know, it's not quiet. It, it's, it's, everything's kind of normal. And I see John or Stanford get his tray and he comes walking back and he puts his tray on the table and goes to get him something to drink. And just out of the blue, this guy comes walking up to Stanfa and knocks him flat on his back, mm-hmm. right in mm-hmm. the middle of the dining room. Well, of course, I jumped the guy that has done hit Stanford in the face. Cause I'm like, this is not going to turn out well. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> and another guy also helped me grab him. We got him down got him handcuffed. And I look over at Stanford and, and started checking him out. He's not, he's, he's going, <laughs> he's talking so fast in his, his Sicilian brogue that you can't understand a word he's saying. Yeah. And I look up and Nicky Gio comes running over uh, the guy that's supposed to be protecting Stanford.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I look cool. up at Nicky Gio and I said, well, you're a little late to the party. <laughs> and it's like, you know what time it is. Right. And he says, yeah, I'll be down to Lieutenant's office in a few minutes because he knows he's going to, we're going to have to lock him up because, you know, have a cooling off period because he's supposed to protect the old man. He didn't yeah. get the job done. So they, the boys are going to take him out back and, bounce him around a little bit so we get we're, we're there in the middle of the dining room all of a sudden me and this other officer look up and notice that the dining room is totally quiet mm, yeah <laughs> we look up and every single solitary inmate within probably 30 40 feet of us is sitting at a table and every single solitary one of them have got a shank hmm. and we're all sitting there getting, me and this other officer is looking like uh so I, I've never seen that many shanks in one place in my entire life, and all of them are looking at us, and I'm like, okay, this is the deal, folks. Stamp is okay. I'm gonna take Stanford over to the hospital to get him checked out. We're taking this guy out of this dining room without any problems, okay? It's done, it's over. And all these inmates are looking at us, and I mean the other officers telling inmates the same thing as I'm talking to them. <laughs> And it's, it's like all of a sudden they just shanks disappear and they go back to eating (laughs) like nothing, (laughs) like nothing has ever occurred. uh, I've never said the biggest who was that guy? Was he just in that case? Or I mean, he had told us because we, (laughs) I come back from taking Stanford over to the hospital. And they're checking him out. And I come back over to the Lieutenant's office and he's sitting there talking and the Lieutenant looks at him and says, what the hell were you thinking? And he says, "I." he says, somebody told me that that guy was a child molester. Hmm. And says, I can't stand child molesters. Matter of fact, I'm in here for killing a couple of child molesters. And it was like, uh, you don't know who that guy was. And, and the guy says, hell no, I don't know who he was. It's a damn child molester. And I, I looked at him and said that was John Stanford, he's the head of the Philadelphia crime family. And it got guy, <laughs> that guy's heart sunk all the way to his feet. It's kind of like, uh. really? So it's yeah, it, I mean he just fell out and the guy looked at your kid. No, I'm not kidding you. I did <laughs> I know an awful lot about John Stanford. So yeah, it, and the guy we had to get him out of the institution right then and there. We sent yeah. him to another joint and Stanford was he would. I think he spent two days in lockup just to make sure that they there was no retaliation or whatever going on or or anything. And I talked to him during those two days, and he's like, "There ain't nothing going on." He's like, that guy's out of the joint. Yeah. He says, no, I "Ain't going to guarantee something ain't going to happen to him at the other joint." But hey, you know, that's life. Yeah. And it's like, it's, and it's exactly what it is. And, and you know, Stanford. One of the uh, key pieces of uh, advice Stanford gave me. Uh, we were talking one day and he looks at me and he sits there and he says, you know, he says, one twenty-two caliber round behind the right ear solves a lot of problems. <laughs> it's cold dude there. <laughs> and, and, and it's kind of like, uh, and I said, yeah, I bet you, you know, a lot about that. He just <laughs> grin at me. and, and, and I mean, it was just kind of like, it, it was really kind of funny.
2: <laughs>
0: <But> they, they, <laughs> these guys could be funny, but boy, I tell you what, when they were down to business and and, the one, the story I was telling you earlier, where uh, the old guys had a guy actually hit, was at nine o'clock at Leavenworth. They close up the institute; that they have a period of if you want to go lock down in your cells at nine o'clock. They would run you upstairs, and we'd lock all the doors, and then we'd come down and we'd block the stairwells for people going up. Well, in D cell house, where all the old guys were, Buffalino and all those guys. They were downstairs. Well, at nine o'clock, they're going to bed. Well, we had this one inmate upstairs that would get up in a cell and turn a radio on and start singing and dancing and, and doing whatever, making a lot of noise. And they sent that they got a hold of the Aryan Brotherhood and told them, said, hey, you know, could you send this guy a message? So they sent this guy up that wants to blood in with the Aryan Brotherhood, earn his bones to get in the group. He goes up and tells this guy, look, knock it off, turn the radio off and shut down the noise. The old guy sent me up here yeah. and this guy turned around and looks at this guy and he tells him, he says, well, you know what? I'll just make a punk out of you. You ain't nothing to me. I'll make a <laughs> punk bitch out of you. <laughs> well, game on. So they did their due diligence with going to the shot callers inside the penitentiary, and, and every penitentiary's got a, a, a committee of its own. If there's something going down in the institution like a major hit, they're going to kill somebody or whatever. Uh, they'll actually send feelers out to other groups, the, the, the Crips, the Bloods. Uh, with us, it was the Moorish Science Temple uh, in Earl Coleman Bay. He was a major shot caller in Leavenworth. He was part of the DC crew that came from Lawton when they shut uh, when they shut it down, and uh, he was a major player. And everybody went out to this, you know, went out and did their due diligence, and they were, all the groups sat there and said, "We didn't, this guy ain't affiliated with us. You can do whatever you want to do with him." And one evening, um, I'm standing in the main corridor. And all of a sudden, over the radio, officer needs assistance, D cell house, inmate with a weapon. And I'm not more than probably 50 yards from the front door, of D cell house. I go running in the cell house. And usually <laughs> when somebody's getting killed they're somewhere down farther down range, well, I come walking. I come running in the front door of the cell house, make a right to where the officer's yelling. And I almost fall over the top of these two guys. Yeah. And this inmate is just hammering away at this guy that they told to knock off the noise. And, and I mean, he is just hammering He's got about a 14 inch piece of strap steel. And every time he stabbed this guy, uh, he was putting it all the way through him. Mm-hmm. And we're standing there. And at that point in time, officers didn't carry anything. All it was, was, was know how and, and if you had to pick up a chair to wrap the guy that was killing the other one across the teeth, well, that's what you did. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, there was nothing handy. Uh, nothing <laughs> we were trying to nail
1: down. <laughs>
0: yeah. And we're trying to get this guy off of him. And finally, there was a lieutenant uh, by the name of Danny Williams, a black lieutenant, comes in, he screams at him, and, and we're screaming at him and throwing things at him and trying to get him off this guy. And finally, this guy just screams, die, you mother, die. And he shoved it. When, last time he hit that guy with the shank, he hit him dead center of the chest and drove it all the way through him. And it broke the tile on the floor right below him. He gets up and the lieutenant looks at him. Well, of course, this guy is now an official member of the Aryan Brotherhood. He just <laughs> yeah. ain't been tat. He, he just hasn't got his tat yet. He made his bones. <laughs> he made his bones. And Lieutenant Williams, uh, the lieutenants were the only ones that carried handcuffs in the joint at that point in time, because the policy was is you didn't want to carry anything that the inmates could use against you. Yeah. And uh, the lieutenant goes to put handcuffs on him, and the inmate jerks away from him, and he looks at he looks at Danny Williams right in the face, and he sits there and he says, "There ain't no GD N word going to put handcuffs on me." Mr. Lamaster is going to put handcuffs on me. And I'm looking at this guy like, <laughs> oh, no. Okay. oh no. So I took, I, I took the handcuffs from the Lieutenant and put them on him and, and took him down to Lieutenant's office. All the way down to Lieutenant's office. I mean, he's like, uh, <laughs> I asked him, I said, so what was up with that? And he looked at me and he sat there and he says, It's just business boss, just business.
2: Huh.
0: <laughs> we took him to, we took him to court down in Kansas city. He gets in the courtroom and of course his lawyer during Pre-trial uh, hearing <laughs> says, you know, my client here is really not guilty. He's a victim of that. <laughs> this inmate reaches over and he jerks his lawyer back down in his chair and stands up. And he says, he says, don't listen to this guy, what he's got to say. He says, I'm guilty. He says, I enjoyed doing what I was doing. If I had to do it all over again, I'd do it all over again. I'd kill that SOB as dead as he'll ever be three times over. And it's just kind of like, well, I guess that <laughs> there goes the day in court. And, <laughs> really? and Judge pretty much basically said, well, since you feel that way and you're admitting guilt, uh, I'll just go ahead and pass sentence now and give you a lifetime of thinking about it in the federal penitentiary.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> and, and, and the guy's still alive huh. and he's uh, in his seventies now, but he's, and he's old and crusty, but, yeah, he's he's still alive. Well, and, you know, there's some people out
1: there. I used to see them. They'd come out of a stretch, and they'd be all fit and healthy. And as soon as they hit the streets, they'd start doing drugs and, and living this dissolute lifestyle and doing crime until they – they got pinched again and, and caught another oh, sentence yeah. and, and it's almost like they wanted to get caught. And I called, I told this one guy, so you're like an institutional man. You can't survive out of the institution. He just looked at me like I had two heads. but, but I firmly believe there's people that, you know, if they do get out, they're going to do something to get back in. They they're, they, oh, yeah. they're more comfortable yeah. in that confinement than they are out on the streets.
0: We actually had a guy when I was there, and I can't remember his name, but it was really kind of interesting. He had been in the institution for—I mean, I got there in 1983, and he had been in the institution 25 years before that. Yeah. And his bit was for bank robbery, and he was getting out of jail. He was getting out of the penitentiary, and everybody was wishing him—you know—have a good life or whatever. Yeah. And he went back to his hometown, and uh, got off the bus walked into the first bank that he saw and handed the teller a note that said, uh, this is a robbery. I've got a bomb on me. Um, Don't do anything stupid. And she gives him the money in the cash drawer. He walks out of the bank and sits down on a bench sitting out in front of the bank. And when the police get there, uh, they're, you know, of course they're getting ready to rush in the bank to see what's going on. And he sits (laughs) there and he says, I'm right here. (laughs) I can see that. And they said, yeah. And he was back within a couple of months. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's a lot of these guys that have spent a lot of time uh, or a vast majority of their life in the penitentiary are just that. I mean, they are they institutionalized. They don't know yeah. how to function yeah. in life. And we had one gentleman that uh, everybody knew this guy was not guilty. I mean, this guy had been sentenced out of Fort Sill, Oklahoma. In the 1940s he was an african-american inmate uh he was uh painting on forts hill oklahoma he was painting buildings and stuff on forts hill oklahoma and this colonel caught him having sex with his daughter well right. of course it's a black man having sex with a white woman yeah uh in that era and of course it's not going to bode well for the gentleman, in fact. And the this guy is still in the penitentiary in 1983 when I show up at Leavenworth. <laughs> and, it, and like I said, everybody from the warden all the way down and the Kansas City prosecutors and everybody, dude, this guy was innocent. Yeah. There, there was no way in the world this guy was guilty of anything. And, and I no mean. Crime, yeah. Right. And we got word one day that he was being released and it was kind of like they gave him natural life in the penitentiary in Oklahoma back when he got caught for rape is what he was charged with on. A, and of course it was on Ford Sill, Oklahoma. So it's a federal crime. Literally, yeah. and, and this guy, it, it, I'm working the number one officer's position on day watch in the cell house when the news comes down and he's getting released. And I kind of inquired I said, well, how's he getting released? And they said, well, The girl that he was having an affair with came forward to the Oklahoma uh, District Attorney's Office, Federal District Attorney's Office, and advises them that uh, that was a total lie. She wasn't raped. They were having consensual sex. Uh, And the the guy was even married at the time and had a little daughter. And... He, because he corresponded with his daughter and stuff. And he was, the guy was not totally illiterate, but he was probably 70%. Yeah. And and other guys would, he would sit there and tell them what to write. And he would, they would send the letters to his daughter. And when the letters came in from his daughter, they would read the letters to him and stuff. And and it was inmates from all across the board that did did this. It wasn't just, you know, the African-American inmates or whatever. When he'd get mailed, any of the inmates that were available would read it to him and, and, You know, pretty much basic. they all knew that he wasn't he he was there unjustly. And she finally came to and told the story. And unfortunately for this guy. Dad lived to be like 97 years old, and he, he he told her that she was never to tell the story ever. And dad lived to be 97 years old. Well, she honored her dad until after the funeral. And she came forward, well, they've released this guy. And his daughter came up to pick him up. Well, his daughter lived down in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And last I heard, he was, and I mean, he's probably gone now. I mean, that's yeah. due to age. But last I heard, because he had told me, said Mr. Ole he says, if I could make $250 a month, I'd live just fine. And I'm kind of like, you know, when this guy went into jail, a <laughs> yeah. phone call was five cents. Uh, gas was probably $0.05 cents a gallon, you know. and this guy's talking $250 a month, and I'm like, wow, I, how's he going to do this? And when they finally got him out of jail, he lived with his daughter, and he started running a newsstand at the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Hmm. Well, he did such a good job that they actually made him the manager of all of the newsstands were throughout the airport, and the guy was – finally lived a, a just and clean life. Hmm. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of folks, you know, with as many people as are incarcerated in this country, you know, there's people that that are probably there that don't belong there. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a low number, but it's, yeah, it, it's like they're there. It happens. And it happens. And, and a lot of times we know it. Yeah. And, and, no matter how much we we advocate and talk, it doesn't change anything. So it, it's, you know, and I know there's people out there that have a grim look on, on correctional officers and grim look on prison. Yeah. And think that, that you know, we're all knuckle draggers that beat inmates all day. Well, there's, and, and we're no longer guards. We're correctional officers. And guards are an old, is an old terminology prior to the 1930s. Yeah. In the 1930s, they started educating Correctional officers, and and they started educating them in in, in interpersonal communications. You're not there to punish the inmates; Uh, you're there to protect them. You're there to protect the safety of the institution, and you know. And and it's it's just a different era now. And and I'm not saying that there's not guys out there that do stupid things, but and you know, I. I was never one of those that went along with that whole program, and yeah. and uh, I've seen guys do stupid things, and I tell them, you know what? I don't care who you are, don't do it in front of me. Yeah. And, and but yeah, the the when you're working in an environment like that, and you get a lot of various inmates from across a broad spectrum of life. We had international terrorists. We had the 94 World Trade Trade Center bombers. Uh, we had members of the posse comitatus, uh, Yori call, which was Gordon Call's son uh, was yeah. at the institution at the time. He was, you know, he actually received packages and, and letters from, uh, organizations, uh, that thought he was a political prisoner. Now, of course we had Leonard Peltier and, and, you know, Peltier is a story all on its own. He, yeah. he, he was more interested about Leonard Peltier than he was anything else. Yeah. And most of the Native Americans that were in the institution wouldn't have anything to do with him. Really?
1: <coughs> now, folks, if you don't remember, younger
0: guys may not remember Leonard
1: Peltier. He was involved with a. there was a standoff between FBI agents and the American Indian movement. There was a a, a, a small group of, of Indians, Native Americans in the United States that grouped up together and, and started protesting and, about the treatment of Indians. And, and they ended up in a standoff in, I think it was in Wounded Knee, actually.
0: Or, uh, it was the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Pine,
1: Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. An FBI agent got killed, maybe two of them. I, I know one got killed for sure.
0: And Yeah, two of them wound up dead. And, and the story was, this is a peltier. Supposedly, uh, ran or rode down the hillside and, and finished him off. Right. And and what most people don't understand about Peltier at the time, he was actually a, a uh, fugitive in flight. Um, he had attempted to, or he'd actually almost killed a state trooper, and I believe it was either Wisconsin or Michigan. And uh, he was a he was a uh, flight fugitive in flight from incarceration was on the FBI's most wanted list oh, at the time at the time. And, and when they finally found uh, Peltier's car, uh, the car, uh, inside the car, they found, uh, the FBI agent's weapons. Uh, he had taken the guns off of the FBI agents and that, and the evidence trail led totally back to him. Mm-hmm. And to kind of give you a little bit of a, a storyline on one of the things that Peltier did, Uh, the actor Steven Seagal had actually wrote Peltier a letter and wanted to portray Peltier in a movie Mm -hmm. and Peltier, this will give you an idea of his psyche. Peltier actually uh, sent a letter back to Steven Seagal telling him that he didn't think he was a big enough A-list actor to portray him. (laughs) And he used to get letters all the time. We'd see letters coming in from Robin Williams and, 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 yeah. Uh, Robert Redford and all kinds of big celebrities and stuff would send him letters and, and stuff like that. And, and he, that, that pretty much basically waned over time. Everybody with Hollywood, everything's about 15 minutes in, in duration. Yeah. So it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of one of those things that, that, you know, here today, gone tomorrow type things. Yeah. And, really. and, yeah, and when they got him, they sent him when Leavenworth became a, uh, FCI. They sent him to Terre Haute, Indiana. And when he got to Terre Haute, Indiana, uh they sent word to the captain that you put him on a compound here in Terre Haute. we're gonna kill him.
2: Huh.
0: And they sent him I mean, believe now he's in Lewisburg, uh, Pennsylvania. Hmm. But yeah, he he wasn't the the he wasn't the well thought of one of the most well thought of inmates on the compound.
1: Uh, interesting. And, and
0: like, like a lot of people portray him as being, and, and you know, when you, you start talking about major inmates have been in that institution. Uh, most people don't know the name of Almy Morris. He was a command sergeant major in the army that, uh, was a green beret. And he was one of the first green beret, in the military, and this guy was well-trained, well-knowledgeable, and and, uh, he took the fall for, he he had married a woman in Korea and had two daughters by him, and I'm not exactly sure how she went totally stir-crazy, but she was attempting to sell one of the daughters on the black market, and uh, mom wound up dead, the two daughters wound up safe, and Almy Morris took the uh, hit for it and kind of the storyline was, is, is that the older daughter took care of mom, but he wouldn't let her go to jail. So we had him and, and, and I mean, you start talking mafia guys, you know, uh, the we had him. Yeah. Uh, he was before. there. Now the Luna cracked me up one day because he was, we had started contracting, we, when I first started, their inmates would come in with a garbage truck and pick up all the trash and then haul it out of the institution and haul it down and dump it at the city dump. Well, when they closed the city dump and started having uh they were taking everything up to defenball. uh We decided to have Ball come in and put com, uh, compactors inside the institution, and we would just take the truck in, pick up the compactor, switch it out, and they would haul it off themselves. Well, DeLuna was <laughs> working food service, and he comes out there one day, and I looked at him and said, so what are you doing out here? And he says, well, he said, I just want to take a good look, and uh, I'd like to thank the U.S. government for uh, contracting with a company that I have to stock in. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really <laughs> – I had to laugh because it was kind of like, yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> but one, one afternoon, I'm in an uh, area where we monitor – uh, Made phone calls at that time and guy gets on the phone dials zero, the operator answers and he says, collect call from Tuffy well, okay I recognize the voice, recognize yeah. the nickname, so I'm sitting here taking notes and the operator gets the guy on the line and he says, she says collect call from Tuffy and he says, I'll take it Somebody's due to find firecrackers in their back backseat. Got it. Click. <laughs> well, okay. So I'm making this note. Well, I I get with a special investigator uh, services inside the penitentiary and let them know what's going on. Well, the next day or next two days or whatever it was, uh, I can't remember the mobster's name. Got blown up all up underneath the uh, bridge viaduct down there in the in the what is it the river bottoms area
1: yeah
0: yeah they they I can't remember the guy's name but he was part of the kansas city mob and they wanted to shut him up and they blew him all over the bottom and he come out and got in his car and boom
1: uh, oh that yeah that was uh um, uh uh carl uh, must have been parker t gary t parker parker t
0: probably as yeah was. it was I, I, and I believe you're right. It, it, it the name really sounds familiar, and but there it's was really a couple kind of, of them. Then there was Carl
1: Spiro about a year or so after that. So yeah. there a couple, three of them along there. I, I can't remember exactly. Uh, uh, one of them was on Truman Road. They're all in the East Side. So right. when, when you say a viaduct in the East Bottoms, why you kind of like a general area? Yeah, it's
0: it's kind of a general area, but it's yeah. it's kind of one of those and you know, and having John Mandacino there and and Mandacino came back in and he worked for me for a period of time. And, and he was quite the gentleman and, 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 you know, he was one of those, you couldn't even get a cuss word out of him. Mm -hmm. Uh, very well spoken, but he was very quiet, very polite. Uh, yes, sir. No, sir. He would do his job. Uh, and motor around the institution, and him and John Stanford were really tight. Oh, really? Uh, as they were going through the institution, and and it, it was kind of you know, and Junior was also there, and and it, they were all really tight. Now, now, John, and,
1: John let me let me tell you, folks, uh, who John Mandosina was. That's not a, a real commonly known name, uh, even in Kansas City. He was he he ordered the last known mob hit in Kansas City. Actually, he, he was a bookie. And for some reason, he contracted with a uh, Peckerwood or a non-Italian named Patrick McGuire, who was just a professional thief, a professional criminal, bank robber, kind of a traveling criminal. And and he contracted with him to to hit a guy named Larry Strada, who was a bookie uh, underneath uh, Mandacina. And I, I think they would gotten word that the government... This is back when sports betting was still illegal, which is kind of a shame. Yeah. How many guys did you have come through that penitentiary for bookmaking? It's
0: no, legal order. everywhere. I, I'm going to tell you what, it's a who's who of who.
1: <laughs> really? Okay. So, so yeah. he, or, he orders, uh, he pays uh, McGuire to hit Larry Strada. And, and, you know, he uses Peckerwood and he did not follow the rules. I This whole thing was, was ill-advised, uh, first of all. They didn't need to hit Strada. Strada supposedly had given the government a proffer, but... You know, so what? You know, it's it wasn't worth all the heat that came down afterwards because it's and using a guy like Patrick McGuire, well, he you know he he's got no code. He gets caught on another crime not too long after that. And the first thing he does is give up Mandacina, and Mandacina ends up taking a taking a hit for. uh for paying a McGuire to kill, uh, kill Larry Strada. And, and that was the last one. I think they learned their lesson from that. The next time oh, yeah. had several guys fall for a bookmaking thing was oh, a couple three years after that, they just immediately pled guilty and took their little two or three year sentence and went on. Uh, it was, uh, uh it was ill-advised. So uh, it's interesting to hear about what he was like as a personality. I knew he was a bar runner. He owned a bar bartender and bar owner. So he would have been, uh, uh, well, you know, uh, good with people more than likely,
0: but... Uh, oh, yeah. I got a lady coming here shortly. To pick okay. Up the guns
1: all right, <laughs> all right. So, Ken, we probably, we're probably out here about uh you know, yeah, we were kind of over our time. Anyhow, I usually do them this long, but this has been so fascinating. So,
0: uh, Ken Lamaster, One of the, uh, one of the more interesting stories, though, when uh, DeLuna on the Las Vegas crime-skimming case, it was kind of interesting. Uh, a lot of the guys that were part of that Las Vegas skimming trial came through Leavenworth headed to other institutions (laughs) and every one of them. And I don't know, you know, folklore and stories and stuff like that. But I found it pretty interesting that uh, every single solitary, one of them that came through, we had them in a holdover status. So they were in the second floor of the hospital and I was working that area at the time, every one of them, was talking and telling the story about well I can't believe who the witness was for the prosecution in the Las Vegas skimming trial and I, I asked the question one instant so who was the uh, main witness and he said well one of the witnesses was that goddamn elvis Presley <laughs> Elvis Presley. <laughs> and it's kind of like, uh, if you hadn't heard, Elvis died in 77. It's, it's yeah. kind of like, oh, well, that story about the witness protection it, it is more true than you know. And I'm like, oh, whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now, now, for you guys out there that don't know that, there's a a pretty famous story that Elvis, went when, when he, he didn't really die, the government faked it because he was going to testify against the Dixie Mafia because they stole his airplane and <laughs> some yeah, kind of it, a it, drug it, thing.
0: So, <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah, he had bought it. He had actually bought that Corsair 880. Yeah. Uh, and it was a uh, future to finance. Uh, vesco.
1: No, yeah. It, it, yeah. Beth, yeah, he was a financier that was in trouble for uh, some of his stuff. Uh, oh, well, yeah. And it, and yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Robert Besco. That's how it was. So, so Elvis got that plane from Besco. I didn't realize that.
0: Yeah. One of the more interesting things about that, though, is, is that airplane, the only time it's ever been videotaped uh, taking off and landing was actually at the downtown airport in Kansas city, Missouri. Huh. <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> it, oh yeah. It, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting some of the stories that you hear inside the penitentiary and, and, you know, it's like the guy, uh, Patty Mitchell, which was a Canadian, uh, the funny story about him is, is that everybody out there remembers the movie point break yeah, with Patrick Swayze. Yeah. Patrick Swayze is portraying Patty Mitchell in that movie. Oh, really? And he was up. in. Now yeah, that, that movie is about Patty Mitchell's crew
2: huh.
0: and, and, and <laughs> Patty Mitchell was a colorful character too. And, and, and you know, you meet a lot of these guys that you read news stories about and stuff like that. And like I said, you know, when you know, the news of the day, you know, Stanford for talking about God, being, he's not a made man. He's not, he's nothing but trash. He's a neighborhood punk and, and <laughs> stuff like that. And you hear the inner workings of how that works. It's kind of like, and you know, when you get to like Felix Mitchell, the drug, uh, dealer out of, uh, Oakland, California, I actually initiated the investigation on Felix Mitchell's murder. I was standing in the hospital. I took all of his clothes off of him, cut them off of him, bagged them for evidence. And was counting stab wounds, and, and his son on gangland talks about, uh, well, they stabbed my daddy 11 times up in Leavenworth. Well, it was kind of like was, I counted 65. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe my count was a little off. I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, and it's, it's just how they do business. I mean, the Aryan Brotherhood killed her chapter president in the main quarter, mm. uh, simply because he wouldn't take the hit on his fall partner. So the Aryan Brotherhood went back to his fall partner and said, Hey, we were contracting your hit because of this. And and your buddy refused it. And he says, you want to make it right? Hit him. And that's just exactly what he did. He killed his fall partner. Hmm. So, I mean, that's how it goes. I mean, and (laughs) Leavenworth, when I first got there, uh, my first 24 months at Leavenworth, we had 18 homicides. Wow. They were killing each other. Like it was a sport. Hmm. but it, it it it's definitely got its folklore to it. That's for darn sure. <laughs> that's for sure. All right. Ken LeMaster, I appreciate you coming on and telling these stories. And- Absolutely. It's a pleasure. It's All always right. a pleasure talking talking with you. All right, I love you. I love your I love your Facebook page. <laughs> okay, I try to
1: keep it up, but I got some helpers on that too. That, that that's there you nice go. Nice that other people post stuff. They they really uh, post a lot of different links to a lot of different things. It's a it's a it's a treasure trove of mob information. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, and, and you know the 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 thing I posted on there a couple of days ago about. Get any advanced copy of the book from Sandy Petty on um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, she's interviewed me several times. We've talked, and and uh, I started reading this book. I mean, it was bringing back memories. I was like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you talk about uh, the guys at that, that different places, the group out of New York that the uh, book Murder Machine has written about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had all of those guys at one point in time at the penitentiary. Uh, Henry Borelli, uh, that guy, you could just tell by looking at Henry Borelli. I mean, he was calm, cool, polite, just stood there and watched a lot of things going on. But you knew that, that, uh, if they needed a contract job done, he was, he was the guy to do it Yeah, and he was part of that group. So, I mean, it, it, it's, and they were all the same way. I mean, they, you just knew that, that, uh, you knew what they were in for and you knew that with them, that was just business.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Killing somebody was just, just just business. business. Not personal. It's just business.
0: Oh yeah. All right, Ken, good to talk to you. Hey buddy. Have a good time. All right. Uh, I'll, I'll be listening uh, when you get the story up and and, I I listened to, listen to you and several other podcasts late at night when, The wife is asleep and I can't go to sleep.
1: Yeah, that's what I do. That's I put myself to sleep with different podcasts. There you go. (laughs) Hardly ever listen to myself, though. I just can't do it. Uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm too critical
0: (laughs) of myself. All right, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm so critical. I don't even like my own recorded voice. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Oh, yeah. What kind of dork is that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I got you. All right. Talk to you later. Have a good day, buddy. You too. Bye. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Gangland Wire. Now, don't forget to like and subscribe down below if you're on YouTube. Now, I started on YouTube, as you all have noticed, I would imagine. Uh, if you're on an audio platform like the Apple Podcast app, you can give me a review there. I appreciate that. Uh, you can also support the making of each episode uh, by buying me a shot and a beer on your Venmo app. If you had Venmo, that's at Gangland Wire. Uh, I have a new way, uh, buy me a cup of coffee. There's a link in the show notes uh, to buy me a cup of coffee or two. Uh, you can go to my website, you can see all my books and movies uh, that are for sale or you can donate via your credit card on the PayPal button or if you have a PayPal account. And if you donate enough, why you start getting those books and movies and uh, a, um, a coffee cup or a t-shirt or whatever you want. Uh, Uh, And remember, if you or a friend are suffering from PTSD, check out the Veterans Administration resources. Uh, Just go to Google and Google PTSD and Veterans Administration or VA, and you'll find that website. You'll find there's a hotline and and there's links there to to help you find uh, uh, resources to uh, deal with that problem. And remember, look out for motorcycles on the road and stay safe. Bye, folks music provided by our good friend and super fan from portland oregon casey mcbride thanks casey